How do fractional CMOs hit the ground running? Hi, I'm Dean Way. Welcome to the Fractional CMOs and the 90 Day Win Podcast. There's a lot of variety in how they kick off a new client engagement. In fact, there's so much variety, it's valuable to just listen to what opportunities they look for and what they tackle first and what they wish wasn't true when they start a new project. So uh, let's find out. Uh, Ross, hi, start with you. Uh, imagine you've just started a new engagement. You're the fractional CMO. We'll talk about early wins in a moment. But first, what problems do you typically see or what problems do you normally look for on day one? One of the oh, major problems- Tell the audience about yourself. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, Dean. I'm Ross Stockdale. I'm a fractional CMO with Thunderstock Marketing. I mainly work with B2B service businesses, the ones doing between $1 and $30 million a year. They tend to have strategy and leadership needs around marketing. And I take on those responsibilities, mainly with an eye pushing up lifetime value, getting costs under control. I used to be a cage fighter, and in the lessons from <laughs> that are more useful than you'd think. We'll have to get into that. <laughs> cage fighter. Okay. So what do you think? What do you normally look for? What, do you, what problems do you typically see on day one? When I first start an engagement, no matter with what client, I, I spend 10 to 14 days doing deep discovery. So I feel like if you don't understand where the client is and where they have been, uh, I can't make any recommendations. I often find that the client does not take that same degree of self-awareness into consideration uh, before hiring me. So I need them to look in the mirror and say, what are all the marketing related things that I have done up until this point? How much did it cost? What were the returns on those investments? What channels? And really consider, do they know who their target offer, uh, audience is? Do they know their target offer? And oftentimes we get the ball rolling in the brainstorm by getting the client to do some deep reflection of themselves. All right. That's great. And uh, Rosh, so uh, tell the audience who you are and uh, talk about what problems you typically see or what problems you normally look for on day one, fresh boots on the ground for a new client engagement. Thanks for having me, Dean. Uh, my name is Raj Kapoor. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called And Marketing. We place fractional chief marketing officers at lower middle market companies, in particular, those that are five to 75 million without in-house marketing leadership who have a desire to grow. We specifically work really well with PE and VC backed companies or founders who are looking to exit and scale. Um, we have 55 fractional CMOs in our community and they have experience in all different industries and all different company stages. That's a little bit about us. Um, I always look for two things on, uh, on sort of day one in a new engagement. Number one is similar to what Ross said. It's all about coordination and alignment with the leadership team. So if they don't have marketing, who does marketing? How do they do it? What do they talk about? How does the leadership team make decisions? I look for that level of coordination because that's a proxy for the yeah. dysfunction that I'm going to have to deal with when I'm a fractional CMO. And the second thing I look for on day one is a big, obvious win. So it's really important when you're in a new engagement, whether it's a new job or a new fractional CMO engagement, to find some sort of a low-lying fruit because that's the sort of uh, – there's an old adage in the sales world that says you have to staple yourself to an invoice, make yourself indispensable from an order perspective. So I always try to look for something like that on or near day, day one. I never, I, I've, I was in sales a long time and I've heard a lot of sales sayings, but I've never heard of stapling yourself to the invoice. But yeah, I mean, that's how this podcast came about, right? I, m most of my work is fractional CMOs will call me in to get an early fast win. And then uh, sort of like came out from there. Okay. So Raj then like, 
Speaking of which, what other kinds of like early wins or low hanging fruit do you like to do in the first 90 days or that you typically see in the first 90 days? Yeah, totally. So, so uh, again, similar to the assessment that Ross described, yeah. you know, we have a, we have kind of a four or five part assessment. I think the best thing that you can do to have success in your first 90 days is actually scope the project well. So it's actually before the first 90 days. It's set the expectation with your client about what they're going to get and what they're not going to go get. Especially in the marketing world, some people who don't have marketing leadership in their company think that marketing is like a LinkedIn post or a Facebook post or something yeah. like that. I often tell people, if that's what you're looking for, go hire a $20 an hour contractor because they'll probably do a good job with your Facebook page, right? So it's a very different expectation setting that I do as sort of a step zero. But getting down to it, there's kind of a four-part assessment that we have. So number one, it's all about people. I alluded to it earlier. Really understanding the people, the leadership team, especially the CEO, most likely the leader of sales or whoever that is, really getting an understanding of what makes them tick, what their expectations are, are they coordinated? What are they looking for? Part two is the digital assessment. So of course you have to look at all of their stuff, right? right. Website, social, SEO, all of that type of stuff. Number three is the non-digital. Often we sleep on non-digital, but it ends up being really important. So what is the sales team putting out in the world? Did they go to events? Did they have trade shows? All of that type of stuff. Take a look at it. And then customers, make sure you hear from customers in your first 90 days, um, which probably gets the lowest hanging fruit. Like, what do I actually see? I usually see a complete misalignment between what customers truly need and expect and what the company delivers. So if you actually stop, gasp, if you actually stop and listen to what your customers want and provide it to them, there's a, usually a low hanging fruit somewhere in that mix. Yeah, uh, uh, this came up uh, a couple of episodes ago. And uh, I mentioned the example. I don't know if you guys know what clear is at the airport. Sure. Of course. So it's like pre-check on steroids. Like it's a private company and you can pay. It's, it's like they take your fingerprint and you get cut right into the front of the line of pre-check. Never mind, just the regular line. And uh, haven't had clear for years and years. And it was one of the first customers to ever have it in the first rollout in the airport they had. And it's not in every airport, but for road warriors, clear is like, you know, clear thinks it's selling faster security line processing. And uh, I've never seen any of their marketing where they actually talk to what the customers are actually buying. And uh, if you're like a very frequent traveler, you're not buying less time in the airport line. You're buying more predictability about how long you're going to have to spend because then, okay, I can stay for one more meeting. I can try to like drop in on one more person here on this business trip and talk to this customer. I can let lunch go a little longer. Right. And see what comes of that, because I'm pretty sure I'm never going to spend more than 10 or 15 minutes in an airport line, no matter what. And so they never sell predictability, probably because they can't like literally guarantee it, but they could always allude to it. But instead, they sell uh, faster security line processing and hope that the customer sort of makes the leap into understanding what they're really saying. So, yeah, classic example of a company that is making one thing, uh, sells one thing, but the customers are buying a different thing. And how about you, Ross? What are, what, are the, what are your favorite kind of early wins or low-hanging fruit do you like to go after in the first 90 days? So there's two parts to that answer. The first part is I like to get a, a emotional and dopamine boost in my client. I like to have them feel like they got an out-of-the-park win. So I have to understand what is their, their core desire, what are their beliefs about their business, what are their limiting beliefs about their business, and how can I overcome them? So one example is I had a, a recent engagement 90 days ago that has had the dream of um, growing the business by 50% in six months so that they could get into their dream location. It's a, it's a niche gym right. uh, related to MMA actually. So I got them to express that goal. And then the, the second part of it was reverse engineering from that goal. How do we get there? 
and giving a clear plan of action that it'd be reasonable to assume if we followed the steps to this marketing plan, then you, your goal becomes closer to a reality. Fun thing about that, we signed, you know, we're at about the 90 day mark. Uh, the goal was to take the gym business from 80 members to 120. By the end of the year, we went from 80 to 140 by Thanksgiving. So he now told me yesterday that he uh, has done more in profit this year than he has done in revenue last year. Wow. So I would never have been able to get that success if I did not get him emotionally bought in and to logically agree to the plan. Well, you weren't kidding when you said that being a former cage fighter still plays a factor in your business. I thought you were, <laughs> I thought that was like a metaphor. You are not. That was very literal. Uh, <laughs> that's really Okay, cool. then, you know, uh, okay, uh, Ross, uh, give me a second here because you got like, that's kind of great. I, uh, okay. Yeah. All right then. Uh, okay. So that's fine. What do like, uh, you're all in the same situation where you have one of the core strengths you have uh, is that you see multiple companies. You have like a breadth, right? When I worked in consulting and professional services, one of the advantages is you have a breadth of experience. You see how lots of companies try to do stuff or do stuff, succeed or fail. And so every client you go to benefits from that experience. So like uh, what do the clients normally not see? or uh, not know about Ross when you start working with them? What so, do they not understand? I think what they don't understand is that how just how similar their business is to every, every business. So a lot of businesses I've talked to think they suffer from, um, uh, what's the word, like fatal uniqueness. Yeah. In, in other words, it's like, hey, you have customers, right? Well, yeah. You provide a service to your customers, yes. Okay, well, let's understand how to increase the lifetime value and decrease the cost of acquisition. And you didn't know what those terms meant. You know, let's go from there. Uh, I liken it to, you know, I always try to take my personal experience because I can speak to my customers from that frame with absolute certainty because I know that I've done that uh, versus trying to do aspirational. So I'm not one of those CMOs that reads a book and tries to dictate somebody else's logic. I try to draw a lot of analogies. So what's easy for me to do is approach the uh, the client from a personal basis on, you know, here's how I approach business as a mixed martial artist. You know, there's let's call them eight primary fighting styles that a UFC fighter has to learn. Uh, typically, they specialize in a few. You can look at that as being either digital marketing or traditional marketing and different tactics amongst them. Right. Um, let's do an assessment on what your unique business style is or fighting style and train you up and get you coaching and proficient at certain elements of business to, you know, bridge the gap. What are you already good at? Um, so they kind of relate to me if, if they're more into, you know, the sports or the personal development, that aspect of my personal side and my business side, I ran uh, in director of operations role in a digital marketing agency. I was where I worked in startups for brands, helped to hyperscale those. And I took my own business as a managing partner of a private equity firm. And I grew that from zero to 10 million in three years. So I acquired seven businesses. So my experience, although I've been in the, the game for 10 years uh, total for marketing, uh, I can speak to, you know, in that 10 years, I tried to optimize my time in this and this way. And usually what, you know, stands out with my clients is they can resonate to some part of my story, whether that be with athletics or sports, whether that right. be with the industry or their goals. And Raj, how about you? 
What, are, what do you think clients normally don't see or, or know about or understand until you start working with them? Most people don't understand how complicated marketing is, right? So uh, they, they, I would say mm -hmm. what people, especially in mature industries or mature businesses that have never really invested in marketing, they think marketing is campaigns. They think it's a LinkedIn campaign or a Facebook campaign or email marketing or SEO or a website. And they don't actually understand that all of the complexity that goes into how you fundamentally get a customer or somebody who pays you to make a particular decision versus their competitor or other next best alternative. Right. So we often get into engagements where they think, oh, great, I'm hiring a fractional CMO or I'm hiring a marketing company. We should see results in a couple of weeks or a few months or whatever that is. And so understanding and setting a foundation usually is the biggest gap that I that I see. So somewhat similar to Ross says, but I'd say I'd say it's really getting them to understand that it takes real time and discipline every single time we do an engagement that jumps to execution too quickly and it fails, we can always point back to something that we didn't do correctly in the strategic phase. So it ends up being really important to the point where we actually won't engage with people who aren't willing to take the time up front to do the fundamental work. Well, that actually um, takes me right into the next question, which is uh, Raj, what are some signs that a client should not have hired a fractional CMO or wasn't ready for a fractional CMO? I'd say the biggest sign is that the CEO, so similar answer, but I think the biggest sign that I see it's a red flag is when you start working with a CEO who is not willing to give up the strategic decisions. Now, of course, a CEO needs to have input and they need to have final decision-making authority when you spend a bunch of money. All of that is absolutely true, but there's a certain mentality that exists with CEOs and it's not necessarily bad. It just is that when you hire a fractional CMO, you still want to dictate everything that happens. Right. What I often tell people is you can pay half as much, just go get a marketing director. Yeah. Great. If you have your strategy in mind and you know what you need done and you just need somebody to lead a team to go do it. Great. Awesome. Go do that. If you truly want a fractional CMO, be ready to have somebody that will disagree with you, that will provide you outside opinions, that will give you things that you maybe don't want to hear about your business, about your customers, about your internal team. That's the level. That's what that's what the premium. That's what the CMO part of it. It's not fractional marketing director. It's fractional CMO. Right. And so when you find sometimes you can ferret that out in the scoping process if you're doing a good job. And sometimes you find out after you start signing the agreement and you need to find a very respectful way to either end the engagement or reset expectations. Ross, how about you? What do you think there are some signs that the client should not have hired a fractional CMO or wasn't ready for a fractional CMO? I agree with a lot of what Raj said, especially on expectation setting as one of the primary things to sort out in the beginning. I think further, not necessarily for me, just on expectation of what the fractional CMO role is and does for the business, but why they're like the reason why they're trying to talk to me. So for example, if someone is trying to launch a startup that's bootstrapped and has no cash and funding, and they need to get sales to become profitable within 30 to 90 days, it's just like, well, slow down, like maybe don't quit your day job in this particular example. Or if someone wants to, you know, hire me to, you know, do an email campaign. And that's the only thing they want to do. As Raj said, you know, it's like, are you sure that's what you should be doing? Because my, my job is to, you know, give invaluable input on to do, not to do how much of what marketing uh, effort we should spend and time and whatnot. So I think it, it really depends on 
the why behind a client, um, you know, engages in a fractional CMO. And if they have the wrong reasons, I want to call it out in the discovery phase before we sign. I don't want a client that expects me to do a marketing series of campaigns and tasks. And when I come back and say, I delegate everything but leadership and strategy, they're just like, well, who's going to do all the work? I'm like, you could go on Upwork. You could find the talent to, to execute. Yeah. All right. Uh, this is for both of you. It's kind of a hypo- It's a hypothetical. So imagine that you've, you know, you've been at this client for like, let's say three months or six months. The CEO comes to you and says, hey, uh, you and I, between the two of us, we're going to interview or vet and then hire a new head of sales. There's no head of sales right now. So uh, from your point of view, what are you looking for? Uh, If you had the opportunity from scratch to help determine what the head of sales believed or how they would work, uh, and so you're, you're hiring, what would you look for? for a new head of sales. I'm happy to take that. I've, I've helped hire sales sales teams. That's perfect. Um, so I think fundamentally there's two things that make sales and marketing get along, right? We've all heard examples where sales and marketing don't get along. And the two fundamentals I go back to are communication and metrics. Mm-hmm. If sales and marketing aren't communicating openly, honestly, transparently with real numbers and facts on a regular basis, they're probably not going to succeed. And if sales and marketing have different metrics, sales is being measured on, Close sales, making the quarter, and uh, marketing is being measured on ambiguous MQLs or awareness or clicks or some other nebulous metric. The two of them are never going to agree. So getting them to agree to those two fundamentals are really important. Depending on the industry and depending on exactly what the goals of the company are. So first, I would make sure those are clearly documented between myself and the CEO. I would develop a series of questions to identify how is this person going to help us achieve our quarters and short-term goals while setting a long-term stage? How well are we going to communicate as marketing and sales that are going to support the CEO to achieve the company's top-line objectives? And then what are the metrics we're going to put in place? I would use that framework to set out the questions that I would ask a particular sales leader. Russ, how about you? Anything you want to keep an eye out for or a red flag? Yeah, I would absolutely agree with what Raj was saying when it comes to communication and metrics. Uh, One of the frameworks that I like to do when hiring sales and sales leadership is to run through a tool from the EOS toolbook, uh, the people analyzer. So what that means is, are they a culture fit? And do they understand? Do they get it, want it, and have capacity to do the tasks that we need? In other words, like, do they think that they're also going to be in charge of marketing? And do they think they're also going to be COOs or CEOs? Or, or do they think there's going to be a, you know, individual producer salesperson? We need to make sure that they understand the role of the head of sales first. And then it's the company. Do they, do they fit in with the company? You know, as a salesperson, you're outbound, you're to the face of your customers. You want to understand the core values and the ideal client profile of the client that we're working with. So you want to bring in customers that also fit. And I think sales and marketing are incredibly important to have a cultural match with the company's core values because, you know, what you're feeding into the company, you're going to determine oftentimes the success uh, and the happiness of your operations staff. And you're going to really make the lasting impression upon, you know, the public. So all all things being equal, a salesperson that just gels with the company um, versus one that, you know, may be suited for a different industry or a different one of your competitors, 
I would choose culture and, and hard skills and a marriage in between. Let's, let's flip it around a little bit because we got a little bit of time left. Let's say that someone, uh, the, the company that you, you and the CEO are looking for, the head of sales, you've reached out to some number of people. They're going to go, I mean, what's the first thing anyone would do, right? Uh, they'd go and they look at the website. Uh, how much quality of the company's most visible marketing has on whether a, a potential head of sales, a potential CRO or CSO would even, I mean, do, they, do you think they even pay attention to that? Does it, do they think, okay, it doesn't really matter what the marketing of the company is right now. I'm, you know, uh, I'm here to sell. Or do you think it actually, you know, uh, sort of frames their first impression? Yeah, I think the, to speak to that point, I think one of the most powerful tools a salesperson can use to influence is conviction. And if the first, you know, first impressions last a lifetime and they're very valuable. And oftentimes the first impression of an online reputation is the website. So if a salesperson goes in the engagement and gets super excited because they believe from the first glance, the website can drive them qualified leads and help them to close the sales process. They're going to believe more in the role and the opportunity and thus making them more effective. On the flip side, what we want to avoid at absolutely all cost is a salesperson that does not believe in marketing. And now you're fighting, Hey, I'm not closing because marketing is junk or making, you know, doing this finger pointing game. So I think oftentimes when you have a strong and powerful website, the salesperson either does or does not buy in almost in a, in a snap judgment. Yeah. I, uh, uh, I might turn that question on its end a little bit and, and suggest yeah. this, that, it's the responsibility of marketing to work with the hiring group, whoever that is, HR or whoever else, to be able to tell a separate value proposition, usually on the careers page, about why that employer is a great place to work. So that sales potential salesperson who goes there should be looking at this from two lenses. One, if I'm a customer and I arrive on this homepage, what do I experience? What is the value proposition? How clear does it come through? Yeah. And plenty of times, a good salesperson will call up the marketing department and say, hey, you're not helping me because this first impression that Ross articulated so well is not coming through. That's huge feedback. That's awesome. That would be expected from a good sales leader, right? Because most marketing people know if their website stinks and having the sales team support them in that <laughs> most is, is helpful to say, hey, we're not making sales. So help me make this investment in the website, right? Because those tend to be larger investments. The flip side of that is, on the employer page and on Glassdoor and Indeed and other websites that might be industry specific, your employee value proposition better be coming across super crisply. And most companies' career pages are simply a list of their open jobs or some very generic language. But you can actually use that uh, real estate to yeah. tell the story about why you're a great place to work. So a salesperson in your, in your fictitious uh, scenario should go there and get really excited about why this is a great place to work. Here's the challenges I'm facing in, in employment. Here's how this company provides them. Here's the benefits I get, not just the sort of uh, HR type of benefits, but the implicit benefits. Here's a little bit about our culture. It's a really uh, often misused or underutilized yeah. asset from my or uh, ignored. Actually, now that I think about it, I've, I've seen lots of career pages. Rarely do they take the opportunity to sell me, yeah. sell me, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I offer the opportunity for HR leaders and CEOs to flip their thinking, to think that the product that they're selling is their company and the prospect is the potential employee. How would you tell that story differently? Well, there's frameworks on how to go do that. And we, you know, that's 
it ends up being very effective in lowering the cost per new employee acquisition. Right. Well, guys, this has been fantastic. Thanks very much for this. Uh, any last words? Uh, let's tell you what. Uh, why don't you tell the audience how they can reach you or find you? I'm happy to go first. Yeah. My, uh, my name again is Raj Kapoor. I work for a company called And Marketing. It's and-marketing.com. Or you can reach me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. Russ. Awesome. Yeah. My name is Ross Stockdale. You can find me at thunderstockmarketing.com. The uh, fractional CMO business I have is called Thunderstock Marketing. I have a podcast called The Thunderstock Show. Mm. You can find me on LinkedIn, um, Instagram, Ross Stockdale 717. And yeah, find me online and happy to, happy to chat. All right, guys. Thanks very much for this. This has been great. Appreciate Thank it, Dean. You. Bye.